Open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, and we're up to verse 51 this morning. We have been considering what it means to follow Christ. What is a disciple of Christ? In Luke 9, from verse 37 down through the end of the chapter, we've been looking at four headings for this. We've already taken in two of those headings, a desperate father and confused disciples. And today we're going to get over to the rejecting Samaritans and then the distracted disciples. So let's read together from verse number 51 down through verse number 62. Luke 9, 51, this is God's word. And it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. They did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them even as Elias did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You know not what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. And it came to pass that as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And he said unto another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. And Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury their dead. But go thou and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow thee. But let me first go bid them farewell, which are at home at my house. And Jesus said unto him, No man having put his hand to the plow, and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Would you pray with me? Thank you, Father, for time together in your word with your church. Holy Spirit, we ask for your blessing upon this time. ask you to do what man cannot. Illuminate the word to us, that we may apply it in our lives, that we may be used of you as the disciples of Christ to do God's will, the The harvest is plenty, but the laborers are few. Lord, as those redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, we stand before you as ambassadors for Christ, living victorious Christian lives, ready to go and fulfill the Great Commission. So help us to go. Help us not to wait. Help us not to sit. Help us not to sleep or slumber, but to go with all of our hearts, with passion, Help us to beware of reasons to reject the service you've called us into. Help us to beware of being distracted with the temporal things of this world and not laying up treasures in the eternal things of heaven. We ask your blessing upon this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. In the first portion of our text, we will consider these rejecting Samaritans. We begin with verse 51 down through verse 53 as we see... The rejection of Jesus Christ. He has refused entrance into a Samaritan village. And the reason is simple. It is because he is going to Jerusalem. From verse 51 all the way until chapter 19 here in Luke's Gospel. He gives the account of Jesus making his way to Jerusalem. 
where he will be crucified. Notice verse 51. And it came to pass, when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. So the time of Jesus' ascension to heaven is drawing near. He knew this. He knew that the cross was along the way. So he set his face toward. He steadfastly moved toward Jerusalem and what awaited him there. Now along the way, he does something that you and I often do. He sends ahead to prepare lodging for himself. No different if you were going to travel and you say, well, I'm going to be in this town on this night, so I need to go and make a reservation. Well, given their lack of modern accommodations, and plus the fact that Jesus was in a group, it was utterly essential, more so even in our day, that they send ahead and make word to this village. So verse 52 tells us, he sent messengers before his face, and they went and entered into the village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And then verse 53 plays this out for us. They did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. So in spite of him giving them proper preparation in time, uh, they still refused him. And the reason could have been, well, a large group of this manner we cannot accommodate, but that wasn't their reason at all. Their reason was because he had his face set to go to Jerusalem, which leads us to understand there's something spiritual going on here, and the reason is not physical. R.C. Sproul explains about the, the accommodations and the arrangements there. He says, Jesus and his disciples would strain the resources of a small village if they were to drop in unexpectedly. And that is true. Of course, if they had heard from the village where he turned five loaves and two fish into enough to feed 5,000, they would say, yeah, let that... Let that guy come on. Our restaurants might be more profitable this week. What we see here as disciples of Christ is Jesus is teaching his disciples what they're going to know or need to know once he is gone to serve the church. Sadly, for the disciples of Christ, they are learning here that there are going to be times of rejection if we are on the path that Jesus is on here. Our face set like a stone toward a singular goal. These rejecting Samaritans are cause for our concerns because we know their reason. Because he was headed to Jerusalem. This was not logistical. This was a result of traditional hostility between Jews and Samaritans. I want you to hold your place in Luke 9 and flip over to John 4. I'm going to show you from John 4 beginning in verse 19. How the cause of this rejection was due to religious differences. And help you to see that the disciples must learn from their master. That this commitment to the mission brings rejection for some people. John 4, 19. You you know this story. The woman at the well. The woman said unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship, you know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh and now in, when true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And I'll take the premise here 
That though I say the storyline of the Bible is all about redemption, the premise of man's relationship with God, and the point of this whole situation, Genesis through Revelation, then, then, us, now, all has to do with worship. Why is there a great commission? The great commission is there so that God will be worshipped anywhere where he's not. We're to go to all the nations. Now we're to start in Jerusalem, our town. Then we go to Judea, the surrounding area. Then we are to go to all the nations. But nevertheless, the point being for God to be worshipped. And Jesus says this here. And here's this Samaritan woman who he's dealing with something totally different. But we see laid out for her, though she is deeply in sin, though she is in no way to be able to rebuke anyone. She begins to rebuke Jesus. And what is her self-righteous manner? Well, my forefathers worshipped in this mountain... Almost saying, and I like to call this Oprah theology, we worship God in our own way. We worship our own God. It's different names, but it's the same focus. And I would tell you this morning, this is not the case. There is one true God, and there's one way to that one true God, because there's salvation in no other name but the name of Jesus Christ. And so we find out here about this traditional hostility between the Samaritans and the Jews. There were cultural inferences. There were societal inferences. There had something to do with the birthing and all of that. And we don't have to get into any of that this morning. I just simply want you to know that here's a group of people on another mountain worshiping another God in another way. And Jesus says to them, you don't even know what you're doing. Salvation is of the Jews. And the day's coming where God will truly worship, be worshipped because he seeks those to worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, with that in your mind, go back to Luke chapter 9. What is Jesus doing here in Luke chapter 9? Well, he's fulfilling the coming of that day. He's making his pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the Jewish holy city. So surely the Samaritans want to reject anyone on their way to there because why do you need to go there you can worship on the mountain right here now true worshipers would understand that would be false worship of a false god and that wouldn't be what we're doing but for them to refuse christ is certainly the playing out of that and we know all about that too well in our own world well that's followed then in verse 54 with a request to jesus he's rejected And then James and John want to call down fire from heaven and destroy the city. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias did? These guys, the sons of thunder, they want to do something about Jesus being disrespected. Now, we're going to get to the rebuke here in just a moment. But before I do, to the modern church, to the decent and orderly church to the reverent church I want to commend their zeal to you I want to commend their passion to you Jesus is going to rebuke them and he's going to say you're operating in a spirit that you don't know anything about and we'll follow the biblical text there but I would say to the modern church we can't even get to Jesus' rebuke because we don't have their zeal we can't get to Jesus' rebuke because we don't have their passion Now, I'm not saying here that we're to be walking around attempting to call fire down. Because all have sinned and probably we'd be calling it down on our own heads. I'm going to be calling down anything. It's grace. What I am saying here is 
Where's our belief that this is possible? When is the last time you've had to be calmed down in rebuke because of your zeal? When is the last time you've been just on fire for God? I don't know how many of you had a similar upbringing as I did, but I imagine most of us had something along these lines. But as a teen in the church, they would have rallies for us, whatever you called them, in your gatherings. The whole point of that was to get a group of teenagers fired up for the Lord in some way, right? They'd call in this guy, and he knew the right jokes to tell and the right things to get our attention. This guy, what's the guy that used to spin the basketball while we, while we preach? Steve Robertson. Steve Robertson. Steve, did you ever know Steve Robertson? You didn't? Okay. This guy would do the in, indoor thunderstorm. Who's done the indoor thunderstorm? You know, some people are snapping. It's raindrops. Some people are, it's wind. Then some people pat their knees. It's thunder. Then some people stomp their feet. Well, he would do that. We would, as kids, we'd be like, man, that's amazing. You know, you'd be at Temple usually in this big five, 6,000 seat auditorium. And you get to doing that. And then he would talk about basketball, and he'd spin it on his finger like a Harlem Globetrotter. The whole time giving you this gospel message. And then at the end, you're one over to the guy. And then he would say, now come make a commitment for the guy, right? I don't do a whole lot of that. Maybe I should. But I want to do a little bit of it here this morning. Some cheerleading. Be excited. Have some zeal. Get fired up for God. You, you have the solution to all of the world's problems. Jesus is the answer. Salvation changes things. Eternal life begins now and it lasts for all of an eternity. People don't have to go to hell. People don't have to stay in their sin. People don't have to live with the crutches and the crux of their sinning. We have that solution. But instead of walking around us, the sons of thunder here and saying, Jesus, they disrespected you. Should we call down fire out of heaven and burn them up? We're, we're walking around and saying, shame on those guys. Where's the love? Where's your love? Where's my love? If I, as I spend my evening sitting in my house watching the Andy Griffith show. Where's the love in that? I think there's more love in the world for guys who are saying, this is awful and it should be stopped and we'll call down fire from heaven and stop it than apathy. So I just wanted to throw that out there. We're, we're, we need to rebuke them. Jesus rebuked them here. But church, don't forget these guys had faith in the power of God. They believed that it could be so. And they spoke out of concern for the honor of Christ with clear biblical precedent. Verse 55, we see the rebuke by Jesus. In verse 56, he turned and rebuked them and said, You know not what manner of spirits you are of, for the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. So he faults them for this vindictive spirit. They lacked love. They lacked patience. Jesus reminds them that he is not here to destroy people's lives. Of all that I've read on these verses, J.C. Ryle addresses this the best. This is a long quote, but I want to read you from J.C. Ryle. He says, It is possible to have much zeal for Christ, and yet to exhibit it in most unholy and unchristian ways. It is possible to mean well and have good intentions, 
and yet to make most grievous mistakes in our actions. It is possible to fancy that we have Scripture on our side and to support our conduct by scriptural quotations and yet to commit serious errors. It is clear as daylight from this and other cases related in the Bible that it is not enough to be zealous and well-meaning. Very grave faults are frequently committed with good intentions. From no quarter, perhaps, has the church received so much injury as from ignorant but well-meaning men. Mm. That's convicting, isn't it? I will say, I quote you a lot on J.C. Ryle. I'm using him pretty heavily in the book of Luke here, but I am thankful that (laughs) I'm not in his church now. Harsh, but it's true. So while I commend you for your for have, to, to, to try to get you to have zeal and passion, I would say be right in the scriptures. In the more modern church, Phil Riken says it this way. He says we need more than good intentions. We need righteous actions. And for sure we do. We need more than zeal for God's glory. We need hearts that are filled with the compassion of Christ. You can exercise the kind of zeal that these guys were here when you have a heart filled with the compassion for Christ. We need more than just a knowledge of Scripture. And we need the knowledge of Scripture. Don't get me wrong. But we also need spiritual insight to know how to apply that knowledge of Scripture. Or maybe just some insight to know when not to. Especially when we begin to think that we have a responsibility to defend God's cause as these guys do here. And we might be right. We might be right about the sin in somebody's life. We might be right about a problem that exists in the church. We might be right about ungodliness that exists in the government. We might be right about prevailing errors in our culture. But are we responding in a way that demonstrates the kindness of Christ? As we think through these rejecting Samaritans who would not lodge Jesus in their town... I think we should also compare them to Jesus' own disciples who said, oh, well, if they're going to do that, well, then we're going to do this. And it's unique how up against Christ, both the rejecting Samaritans and the fire-calling disciples are both kind of acting similarly. We disagree on something spiritual, so we're not going to let you sleep here. Well, if you're not going to let us sleep here, then we're going to wipe you off the face of the earth from fire from our God. There again, not saying that's always wrong. Elijah could argue that point, couldn't he? He, <laughs> he watched God lick up the prophets of Baal from Mount Carmel. And I'm, I'm, I'm asking you to have that kind of zeal. But in this, I wonder... How often we're kind of like both of these folks. Rejecting because of spiritual disagreements. Or maybe we're doing the opposite. Maybe we're embracing in spite of. We we know that they worship a false god and we're not willing to tell them. That moves us to where we want to end today. Distracted disciples. In verse 57 through 62. And this really hits home to where we are. As we consider what does it mean? And what does it take to be a disciple of Christ? And I, I want to remind us here. J. Vernon McGee reminds us well here. This is not about salvation. He says notice this is not giving the way of salvation. 
The question, what must I do to be saved, is not asked here. Rather, this is what is required to become a follower, a disciple of Christ. We're not talking about working your way into heaven. We're not talking about earning it through your own merit. We don't believe in that. But here, as we read, all three of these people have every intention of following Jesus. And we learn clearly that discipleship means Christ ruling our lives without rival. Notice from the first verse here, as we work down through verse number 62. Verse 57. And it came to pass that as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. Now as we look to these, I want you to see that material comforts, relationships with our friends or our family, or maybe even our occupation, can stand in the way of our discipleship. They become distractions. And these types of things aren't bad or wrong, but they must be secondary, Jesus teaches, to him. So this first one who says to Jesus, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest, Jesus replies to him and he says, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Hardship keeps him from becoming Jesus' disciple. I think he's well-meaning. I will follow you wherever, Jesus. That's easy to say when you're excited. That's easy to say in the daytime with your belly full. It's a little different to say at night when you're sleepy or when you wake up in the morning and you're hungry. And Jesus sort of shuts him down here in a sobering way and says, you're going to follow me wherever I go? Well, be sure what you know what you're signing up for. While the birds have a nest and the fox have a hole, I'm homeless. I don't know where I'm going to sleep tonight. I don't know where my next meal is coming from. And that's the route that we're on here. His face was steadfastly set to go to Jerusalem. The next two, we find kinship keeping them from becoming Jesus' disciples. In verse 59, he said unto another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. And Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. Now this duty of burying the father took preeminence in all of Jewish life. Of all of the things they were to follow and all of the things they were to do, should you be up against burying a dead loved one, especially a son to his father, everything else was put aside so that you could go and take care of this. And even in that thing, Jesus says here, let the dead bury their dead. Now be sure what he is saying there. Let the spiritually dead bury their physical dead. That's his connotation. But the application to what he is saying here is he requires his followers to be willing to neglect even this. This highest of obligation in their culture. The next one says in verse 61, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go and bid them farewell, which are at home at my house. And Jesus again, as this guy says, let me, let me just go say goodbye to my life. Maybe he's saying, let me put in my, my notice at work. Let me say my, tell my family goodbye. Let me sell off my stuff. Let me make these arrangements here. And Jesus said unto him, no man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. There's an illustration given there that is awfully understandable. 
once you put your hand to the plow, looking back becomes a distraction. And you can imagine the illustration, even if you've never hand plowed, which I never have, but I've hand mowed. It's kind of the same thing. Well, I was taught, I don't know how you mow. Some of you mow in circles, don't you? How many of you mow in circles? Shame on you. It's not right. I drive by your house and, it, and I break out in hives. It's supposed to be straight lines. But I was taught you, you start here and you go there. and you, you focus on whatever you're aiming for and you'll end up there. If you're looking right in front of you the whole time, you'll be correcting the path all along the way and you won't keep it steady. And when you get there, you'll kind of have zigzagged. Jesus says this here about plowing. I'm no farmer, so forgive me for not getting into the historical context of that illustration. But, but I think we get the point. If you put your hand to the plow... And you're constantly looking back to see where you've gone. Did I make that row straight? Every time you do, you're going to swerve. Jesus has his face steadfastly set to Jerusalem. And people are coming and saying, I'll go with you. I'll follow you. I want to be your disciple too. And he says, let me go bury. Or let me go say goodbye. And Jesus says, no. Once you put your hand to the plow, there is no looking back. Ryle says here, he says, those who look back want to go back. That's the truth. A disciple, Jesus is teaching here, a disciple has to have his eyes fixed on Christ and straightly following him. So we, the church, learn that the cost of discipleship is high. Discipleship demands all that we have to give. There needs to be a point in your life where you fully surrender like that. Maybe you have it this morning. And I'm not saying you've got to be homeless tonight. But I'm saying you need to be willing to be. And I'm not saying you've got to go hungry today. But I'm wondering, are you willing to miss a meal for Christ? And I'm not saying you've got to say goodbye to your favorite relationships or your kin Or that you can't keep working your job. But I wonder, are you willing to let go of those things for the sake of the gospel? Philippians chapter number 3, verse 13 and 14 says, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.4, No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. And you understand Paul's illustration there. In fact, we can even bring it to the current context. Can you imagine someone fighting for America, a soldier, out on the battlefronts? But in the midst of the heat of that war, his wife needs him. So she dials up his iPhone. And, and says, where did you put the butter? And he says, honey, I'm being shot at. We're on the front lines. We're in war here. Oh, that's goofy. They don't do this. And we hate that. When, when soldiers go away, we understand they're, they're going to be distracted. They're going to be deployed. They're going to be away from us for a time. And, you know, we mail the care packages, and they write letters. And nowadays we have technology, so you can send the email. And sometimes you can do the calls, and sometimes you can't do the calls. And they can't talk about where they are. We get all of that. 
Why would it be any different for the soldiers of the Lord? This is what Paul says. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life. Daryl Bach writes here, Disciples cannot back off from the task. Discipleship is not a second job. It's not a moonlighting task. It's not an ice cream social or a hobby. It is the product of God's calling and should be pursued with appropriate seriousness. John Wesley would always say this, Do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as you ever can. Let's stand and pray. Father, we thank you for clear instruction in your word for what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Forgive us that we've allowed the institution of organized religion to give us a false sense of security that we are your disciples. I would say that most are simply fans of Jesus and not followers. I would say often we're living for ourselves and not for you. So help us this morning to realize that the cost of discipleship is high. Help us this morning to give up all of our temporary pleasures or at least be willing to give them up for your sake. Help us to forget those things that are behind and reach forth unto those things that are before. Help us to press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling. Help us not to entangle ourselves with the affairs of this life as we fight your war. Help us not to back off from the task. Help us to do all that we can now in the life that you've given us. Bless this time now as we respond to your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Would you pray that this morning? Would you commit yourself as a disciple of Christ? If you're unsaved this morning, the gospel is clear. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you're unsaved this morning, you can be. But God doesn't save us and then stop. He saves us to serve until the second coming. Maybe you're, you're, you're an adult here this morning who said, yeah, I did that as a teenager too. I walked an aisle. I bowed a knee. I said, Lord, take my life and use it however you want. And here I am all these many years later. Well, there's nothing wrong with recommitting. One of the things I've learned in my adult life that I don't like in my adult life are the seasons of life. Because I want things to stay the same. Probably in the seasons of life, it's good for us to reassure, reassure our commitment to the Lord. Lord, do you want me to do something else now? Lord, have I gotten bound down with stuff, people, commitments of this world? I would encourage you all, young and old. Lord, all that I am is yours. All that I have is yours. Every breath, every step, every day of my life, take me, use me fully for you. Lord, help me to begin every day saying, what would you have me to do today? Let's bow and praise Miss Wiggins' place for us.